Bibles, if you will, to 1 John chapter 4. We'll be resuming our study of this epistle tonight, um, picking up in around, around verse 16. Hopefully you have enjoyed this study as much as we have. And one of the things that's beautiful about 1 John is, is uh, one of his objectives in this letter seems to be to help give confidence in our salvation. And throughout the letter, as, as we've seen in these uh, weeks of study, there are these occasions where he says, this is what we know. We know this. And, and that continues tonight as we uh, investigate the rest of chapter 4 and make our way into chapter 5. But we don't want to go too far without first giving um, some credence to the, the first half of this chapter. We want to have some context and, and know where we're jumping into. So I'm going to ask Ben if he would kind of give us a little bit of a review of of what we discussed last week and, uh, and where we are in the context of chapter 4. Well, chapter 4 last week, we were able to study, uh, Jay, Mingu, and I, as we were studying chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 4, he challenges uh, his audience to test the spirits, uh, to test whether or not this is from God, whether or not this is uh, what God would be pleased with. We have to test the spirits to see if it is false or to see if it is of God. And the way that we see whether it is false is whether or not love is involved. Whether or not love is coming from the person speaking. That's what he winds up getting to in verses 7 and following. And we had a long conversation about love. You can see if someone has the love of God about them. And the conversation continued on as we went throughout that study about how love is what should separate us from the rest of the people around us. Love is the factor that changes everything. Uh, that is how we know whether we abide in him or not. And so that's where our study wound up ending at the end of verse 15 about confessing Jesus, the Son of God. That's how we know God abides in us. Remember last week we also discussed this problem that John was facing on Gnosticism. These people who believed that Jesus was not the Son of God, that he was not the Christ, he was not the Messiah, because there's no way someone could come in the flesh and have the, have the temptation of the flesh and still be the Son of God. But John is saying, listen, he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. And anyone who is saying otherwise is not abiding in God the Father. You can't have God the Father without God the Son, John is saying. And he's challenging his readers here. You have to confess Jesus is the Son of God. And when you do, God abides in you and you abide in God. That's where we ended up last week. Thank you, Ben. Now, turn your attention to verse 16, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll begin our discussion this evening. Verse 16 of 1 John chapter 4. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brothers. So in this last half of chapter 4, as John continues to expound on the subject of love, he makes this grand transition into love not just for God or love of God towards us, but this transition of, hey, if you love God, it's going to manifest itself in love for other people. And and John sets it up as a non-negotiable factor that you cannot have a right relationship with God if you don't love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's it's non-negotiable meaning in a sense, your relationship with God is contingent on your relationship with others. And so there's, a, there's a, uh, a factor here. There's a corollary between the two parts of the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You, you, when you get to 1 John chapter 4, you see why the greatest command has two parts to it. Because your relationship with God is contingent on your relationship with others. Your love of God will manifest itself in your love for others. And so John is, is continuing to expound here on the subject of love, and he's incorporating others into the equation as well. There's a lot to unpack here in this section, and so now I want to turn it over to these guys. Uh, what other observations do you have about this section of 1 John chapter 4? I think uh, what one thing John is doing here is um, that he is elevating love uh, much higher than the standard that the world worldly people can have, uh, even other religious people. The love that we have to have towards our brothers and sisters in Christ should be the love that God has for us. So the love is totally uh, a different love that we can't imagine as human beings. But the love that uh, we will have because we are born of God through the you know, sacrifice of Jesus Christ would be such a love that God has for us. So the love is much higher love. I mean, you know, it's not just human love. It's uh, divine love. So we will have the divine, uh, divine nature as we are born by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ uh, through the, you know, sacrifice of him. So I think John is giving us the idea what kind of love that we have to have for each other. And that love is, you know, much higher, much, much higher. I, I mean, I don't know other <laughs> expressions to say this. Okay. Uh, I, I hope you can understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think it's interesting in this passage, in this incredible conversation, in this 
really this discourse on the whole topic of this cornerstone idea of love, we have this for, in verse 18, there is no fear in love. And we have this discussion, okay, this perfect, this perfect love cast out fear and kind of what that means. And so I thought that was interesting that is at this point that this is brought in. And so it's interesting because it says here, okay, so, the perf, you know, in love, it, or love cast out fear, there's no fear in love. In other passages of the Bible, we were directly commanded to fear God. So how do we reconcile these two ideas that, well, if we're embodying the love of God, we should have no fears, but also we should fear God? We've got to understand where this fear is coming from, I think, and, and what we see here is in verse 17, love or is perfected or made complete with us so that we may, be, we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the fear that we're really discussing here in this passage is this fear of judgment. You know, we have this idea that our God is our Father, our Creator, our Ruler is also our Judge. And for some, for some of us, the fact that He's our Judge is a, is a scary thing. It's a, ter- it's a terrifying thing that one day we'll, sit, we'll kneel before the throne of God and that He will be our Judge. But for those of us who are living in Christ, we can't wait for that day. We, some of us may be praying for that judgment day to get here as soon as it can so that we could kneel, our, kneel down before the throne of God and be judged by Him because we know we will be found complete, not by our works, but by being under the name of Christ. And so what, I think the idea that's getting across here is if we're abiding in love, if we're abiding in God, the love of God, then there's no room for this fear of judgment, this fear that brings on torment or, or how the New American says, um, fear involving or involves punishment. You know, I, I've, had, I've taken many tests before my life where there's torment and punishment leading up to it. Or I didn't feel confident. As I was studying, as I'm walking, I, I remember multiple times walking from my dorm to my, my, uh, the classroom praying a lot, saying, I really hope I've done enough. I, I hope I've retained this knowledge. I really hope I understand this knowledge. And there was this kind of inward torment that I had not done enough to pass this test. And I was afraid. Well, in a Christian's life, there is no room for that when it comes to our judgment day. If God's love has been made, has made complete in our life, then we can have the confidence and we can, we can joyfully await this, this day of judgment, this, this test that God is, will ask us, that God will put us through, because we know it's not based on our works, but it's based on the love of Christ that we are living under. And so I find that interesting, one part of that, um, this, this kind of dichotomy of fear versus love here, that there is a righteous and a reverent fear of God, you know, following His commandments, um, there's, there's no fear for the day of judgment. And because, in verse 17, as he is, John says, as he is, so also are we in this world. So the position that God is in right now, this glorified, perfected state, as he is, we are in this world. When I look at this text, I, I think I see a, a theme forming as we look at the book of First John in this idea of what it takes to abide in Him. I don't know how many times, I haven't counted how many times, but it seems like every week as we go through this text, it says over and over, this is how we abide in Him. And if we abide in Him, then He abides in us. And He says this over and over and over, all the way back from chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. 
Here we are in chapter 4 yet again. The ultimate way that we abide in Him is to abide in His love. To abide in the love that He had. That's how we abide in Him. And if we abide in that love, He abides in us. That's exactly what He says in verse 16. He who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. And that is how we separate, like Mingu was saying, I think, it's not this human love. It's not infatuation. It's not this emotional uh, uh, love. It's sacrificial love. It's a step up, like Mingu was talking about. This is the type of love that God displayed. If we display the type of love that God displayed, then God is in us. And I think that's what we have to understand. See, because a lot of people in the world have love. There's a lot of people who have love. But there's way less people who have the love of God. The love that is compelling them to serve others. The love that is compelling them to forgive others. The love that is compelling them to sacrifice for others. That's the love of God. That's what Christians are to be holding on to and aspiring towards. And that's how we know God's in us. We were talking a couple weeks ago about standing out. How do we stand out? Well, love is how we stand out. Love is the difference maker in a Christian. You ever met a Christian who wasn't so love loving? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, now you're talking about sticking out like a sore thumb, right? Now that sticks out like a sore thumb. Why are you even here, it seems like, sometimes? Why, 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 why are you missing the point, you want to say sometimes? Because as Christians, especially within the family of God, love has got to be the core foundation of who we are. And that's exactly what John's trying to get to. John's trying to compel them, to, to convince them, to convict them that love has got to be exactly who they are, what they are about, or else... God does not abide in you. You cannot say, I love God, and hate your brother, John says. You cannot say it. You can't fool God when it comes to love. If you say out of one side of your mouth, I love you, Lord, and then out of the other side of your mouth, I can't stand Ben Hogan. <laughs> then you are not abiding in God. That's exactly what John was saying. Have you heard that much? No, but for real. <laughs> Jay, we just don't talk, tell anybody what we say about Kyle behind doors, okay? Listen, God has to abide in us if we are to be called Christians. If we are his children, then we have to abide in God, don't we? And the way that we do that is through our love. We cannot be double-tongued. When it comes to our faith, we cannot hate our brother and sister, hold grudges against our brothers and sisters because of something they said about your casserole 15 years ago. We've got to rise above and see the love that we have for our brothers and sisters. Because, again, that's what separates us. You know, some people don't want to get involved in the church. They don't want to get involved in Christianity. They don't want to get involved in religion. And why is that? Because they have experienced some form of hypocrisy from Christians. Christians who call themselves 
uh, children of God who call themselves these people who follow love, joy, peace, patience, and all they see is anger, wrath, gossip, and hatred. You can't be like that, John is trying to say. If you're going to abide in God, you're going to have to be like God. This is the commandment we have from Him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now we'll turn our attention to chapter 5, and let's uh, start going through the first five verses there as John continues with this train of thought. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The part that stands out to me in this section is His commandments are not burdensome. That phrase just captivates me. What, what are His commandments? We pretty easily boil it down to the greatest command, the love God, love people type uh, mentality, that when we want to summarize His commandments, that's where we go. Now, I know you're probably out there thinking, well, there are other things that He commands. Uh, categorically, it falls down to those two things. If you will love God with your entire being and you'll love others like you love yourself, you're going to fulfill everything He expects of you. And when I think of this terminology of his commandments are not burdensome, it makes me think of what it would be like to be an Israelite. If I had to keep up with all 613 commands that we have in the Old Testament, have you ever really thought about what life would be like if instead of those two overarching commands, you had to keep up with all of the statements that appear in the Old Testament? It, you know, we think about the Ten Commandments, and we think, okay, that's pretty easy. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not... Uh, steal, thou shalt not lie, that sort of thing. But Mosaic law, the, the commands in the Old Testament, they wove into every aspect of your life. For example, there were commands that dealt with your family life. In particular, Mosaic law dictated who you could marry and who you could not marry. It dictated if you were to marry somebody that was outside of Israel, there were certain rituals you would have to, to keep before you consummated that relationship. There were instructions about marrying your brother's wife if he died before she bore him any children so that you could advance his name and his property. So there were laws pertaining to family. There were laws pertaining to work life. You're familiar with the, the laws about the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath day and that meant if you were behind on that project or if you had a deadline coming up, you couldn't put in overtime on Saturday to, to make up for it. You couldn't put in the extra work so that you can make that deadline or whatever. And in, in addition to that, Mosaic Law told you how you sowed your seed in a field and what animals you could plow with and what animals you couldn't plow with. It had a lot to say about your work life. Think about your finances. You were required to tithe according to Deuteronomy chapter 14 and 26. 14, chapter 14 and chapter 26. That means you're re required to give God 10% of your gross income, whether that be physical currency or 
agricultural produce. In addition to that, Mosaic Law had provisions regarding how you handled the dispersion of your inheritance, how, uh, which ensured that your descendants were, were fairly treated. You didn't get to decide entirely how your inheritance would be divided. There were laws about that. There were instructions regarding whether or not you could charge interest on a loan, instructions ensuring the fairness of weights and measures, instructions regarding the payment of wages to employees. There were uh, commands about your health. Mosaic Law had a strict dietary plan. No bacon, guys. No ham. No pork chops. I'm hurting just thinking about it, Ben. No shrimp, no crabs, no lobster. Ben, the crabs will get you. In addition to the dietary stipulations, Mosaic Law had specific instructions regarding cleanliness, how to deal with diseases, what the mother and the child were supposed to do at childbirth, and even instructions on how you handled uh, human excrement. And time's not going to permit me to talk about laws, about property management, warfare, environmental issues, social justice. The point is, there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament that we don't ever think about, that we don't ever consider, and, and they affect every aspect of one's life. But we aren't under that law anymore. We're under a new covenant, a better covenant, and it boils down to this, love God and love people. His commandments are not burdensome when you put them in that context, when you think about them in that way. And let's take it one step further. Think about Mosaic Law and how sins were dealt with. You'd have to know the animals that you needed to take to the temple to sacrifice. And you needed to know the whole process you were going to have to go through. You would need to do all this every time you sinned. Go, go give that animal and, and have that animal slaughtered on behalf of your sin. But Christ died once and for all. A perfect sacrifice. His commandments are not burdensome when you put them in that context, when you think about them in that regard. And, and so when I come across this verse that talks about uh, the fact that his commandments aren't burdensome, I just step back and remind myself that I don't have to do all of that anymore. Love God and love people. Guys, what are your thoughts on this section? Yeah, I think as we step through that, the first thing I noticed in this passage, um, when I step through the first five verses, just a couple comments for almost for each verse. Verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. I think that's a call for us to recognize. If we who believe in Christ are born of God, then we should love other people who are born of God. And so this is still kind of tell-in comments on this important commands of loving one another. And then in verse 2, we have the, the, uh, the fuel or the, the reason behind. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And so this gives us the, um, i trying to think of the word, uh, not momentum, uh, the reason. If we love God, then we'll love other people around us and observe his commandments. And in verse 3, I was also going to comment, I wasn't going to read all the Old Testament commands, but I was going to comment on his, comment, on his commandments not, are not burdensome. I have to reconcile myself with that if that's the case. If I find a command in God's word burdensome, then I'm not looking at it correctly. If I find prayer burdensome, then I'm not handling prayer correctly. If Bible study to me is a burden to my life, then I'm not looking at it in the right way because his commands are not burdensome. 
They weren't made to be burdensome. God didn't give a list of do, do's and don'ts for us to, be, to have to navigate a difficult life. He gave these to, so that we can find nourishment for our soul. He gave these commands so that we can have a life and life abundant. So if I find a commandment or something hard to follow, then I need to change my thoughts on it. If loving others is really hard to do, then maybe I need to, maybe I need to change, my, change how I see it and say, okay, maybe loving others is hard. But if I see that as a response to God loves me and how I can love God back is loving other people, then maybe that makes that less burdensome. So it's a challenge for us to change our view or change how we see a command if it, in fact, is burdensome. And then verse 4 and 5, this beautiful passage, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is Son of God? I'm reminded of my favorite verse in John 16, 33. In the world you have a tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's an amazing, th- it's an amazing amount of confidence that we get in verse 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. When we put on Christ in baptism, if we believe in Christ and we get this new title of a new creation, one that's been born again, Christ would say in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, then I'm born into a family. I'm born into a father that has already overcome the world. I am destined for that. There's an NFL, I, can't, I think it's, this is a weird comparison, there's an NFL running back right now, I think it's Christian McCaffrey. Both his parents are Olympic athletes. And so people have always made the comment, he was born to be an athlete. His, his father, his mother, both have went to the Olympics and made a name for themselves. So as he was growing up, they're saying, this, this kid is destined to be just a ground-shaking athlete. And he is. He was born into it. He's raised into it. And my father, the creator of the universe, is above all the petty trials of this world. My brother, Christ, says, in the world you have tribulation, but, take, but take, be of good cheer because I have already overcome the world. My father is above it. My brother has gone through it. I'm born into a family that rises above all these hardships. I'm born into a family. I'm a part of a family that simply rests above the trials and tribulations of this life. So I know because of that that I have what it takes to get through to rise above, just like when an eagle sees a storm. I think you've used this illustration before. Eagles rise above, they're under clouds, they just fly over it. Isn't it an amazing thing in our life as Christians that, yes, we have to go through difficult times, yes, we have to go through hardships, yes, life is difficult, but we have something above it that we get to hold on to. We, get, we have a love, an assurity, a confidence that we can rest assured in at all times. Yes, we may be stuck up in this, or yes, we may be, you know, weighed down in that. But at the end of the day, we can, take, we can be of good cheer because Christ, he's already overcome the world. Our Father, he, he who is born of God, overcomes the world. I have no doubt in myself, not because of me, but because of who I'm born from. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So when I look at uh, verse 1, I... I, I can't help but think about uh, something I learned in college uh, when we look at this word begotten and begot over and over, born of God over and over throughout this text. When you look at, first of all, the context of why this book was written, uh, the audience to whom it was written, Christians, like we've said each week for the last few weeks about Gnosticism, people who did not believe 
that Jesus Christ was the Son born from God. What does he say here to the readers? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. He's calling out this false teaching that they are battling each and every day at this time. First of all, second of all, when we read John 3.16, same author, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his what? Only begotten son. That word right there is monogenes. Mono meaning only, genes meaning begotten. Uh, that's how it has been translated. But the more accurate uh, translation of that word is something that uh, Dr. Burleson taught us in class. Unique son. One of a kind son. Uh, when you take, break down words, sometimes it just doesn't work. That's what people have done with translation. It just doesn't work. It doesn't give the great meaning that the actual word means. And monogenes means only begotten. Jesus is the only begotten. Well, how can we be begotten as you and me if Jesus is the only begotten? See, that's why that word kind of needs more explanation. It's the unique, the one-of-a-kind son. And if we want to be of the one-of-the-kind, if we want to be of that unique son, if we want to be begotten of God, what do we have to do? He says it right here in the text, verse 1. He, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the born of God, or is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. Just like Jay was saying, if we're going to love God who begot all of us, we're going to have to love the ones that he begot. The ones that were born through Jesus, when they confessed Jesus is the Christ. This is what he's saying in this text. Back in uh, this verse here, he talks about what it takes to be born of God. If we want to be born of God, we're going to have to be people who believe in Jesus as the Christ. Not only believe it, but love the others around us just as we've been talking about rolling over from chapter 4. And if we are born of God, verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Why? Because we have been born through the Son of God. The monogenes. The unique one of a kind. When we are born of God, we become one of a kind. We become unique sons and daughters of him. And that's what John is trying to say. He, who is he who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. One thing here we, we can see is that John is contrasting between keeping God's commandments and loving the world. He doesn't say much about loving the world, but in this short uh, section, he has the contrast in his mind as he's writing, because he already said in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 15, do not love the world. So if we love the world, we automatically fail to keep God's commandments. So to keep God's commandments, 
we should not love the world. But it is not easy thing because we are living in the world. We need worldly stuffs. We need the worldly lives. We need to uh, take advantage of the worldly you know, uh, systems and you know, materials and everything. So we need to have the power and wisdom to overcome the world, worldly attractions, worldly, uh, you know, uh, worldly, um, you know, uh, some temptations. And that is the gospel. This is the gospel. If you are born of God, you will overcome the world. It's not easy, but the, I mean, it's not easy to overcome the world for a human being, but for a human being who is born of God, it's almost automatic because God is working in us. God is giving us the power to overcome the world. So the matter, what matters here is that if we are truly, really born of God by the propitiation of Jesus Christ, if we are really, truly born of God through the gospel, obeying the gospel, we will have the power to overcome the world. And, you know, more precisely speaking, over overcoming the world will not be a matter for us because we will, we will have the power and wisdom to overcome the world, not to be deceived by the world. All right, now let's pick up in verse 6, and we will read through uh, verse 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Oh, excuse me, that, that sounded weird the way I read it. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is a challenging section. There are some statements in there that uh, can be confusing and, and difficult. Uh, as I studied this section, particularly this statement on the front end about um, Jesus coming by water and blood, that's interesting terminology and makes you wonder what he's referring to. And there are, there are, if you examine it in commentaries and what people have to say about it, there's a lot of different variations. The one that, that made the most sense to me as, as I examined this is they deal with the, the Gnosticism issue. As John is dealing with people who denounce the, 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 the physical Christ having come and died, the one uh, response that I, I noticed the most is, is that the, the water could be a reference to the fact that Jesus um, was baptized. The blood could be a reference to the fact that he died. And it's pointing to two significant events in his ministry. The start of his ministry, his baptism. The end of his ministry, his 
death. And so it's, try, it's conceivable that what John's saying here is Jesus did come. We, have his, we know of his life and his ministry from its start to its finish. And we know what he's done. And his life gives testimony to who he is. The Spirit testifies. It does so uh, through uh, the, the, the word of the apostles. For us, it does so through the inspired word of God that we hold in our hands. The Spirit testifies to the identity of Christ, but so does his works. Jesus himself would often appeal to his, his works as evidence of who he is. He does that in John chapter 5 and verse 36 and John chapter 10 and verse 25. He says, hey, you don't believe what I say? Just look at what I've done. That testifies to me. And so it testifies to my identity, to who I am. And so when we're here at the outset of this, this seemingly complicated section, I think what John is trying to say is, hey, his, his life, his works, what he did on this earth, particularly what he accomplished in his death, all of that testify to who he is. And John is holding that up as a, a witness of his identity as he contends with these individuals who just denounce the deity of Christ. But this is a complicated section, and so let's open it up and, and, and see what else these great ministers have to say about this section. Obviously, we're dealing with one of the greatest textual variants in all the New Testament. I believe you covered this in your study on how we got the Bible a few weeks ago in your Wednesday night series. Uh, we know that this is one of the greatest textual variants because uh, the workers on the Bible, the, the people who were translating the Bible, they wanted somewhere, somehow, in the New Testament, proof for the Trinity. We want to be able to prove this doctrine, this huge thing that we've created in the Trinity, the idea that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, and they are one being. Now, is that true? Absolutely. We find all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, that that's a true fact, that there is a Trinity, that there is the Father, that there is the Son, that there is the Holy Spirit. However, we don't find it in one text. So when we, in my translation, it doesn't say the water and the blood. It says in verse 7, there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, who is the Word? Jesus, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Jesus. Alright, verse 7. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. So here's this huge textual variant. This is a very big discrepancy in translation. So we're dealing with that in this uh, text. So that's obviously another one of the reasons why this is a difficult text. But as Kyle already talked about in his series, as we've talked about tonight, water, blood, he's battling against Gnosticism, right? He's battling, and is this an incorrect statement? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one? No. But it is something that is a discrepancy. It's a variance that we see in the text. And you can study that on your own if you want to do some study on that. Johannine comma. Johannine comma. Look it up. But I want to talk more about verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. What are we thinking about here? We're thinking about in court, we, we receive, we believe 
witnesses of a scene. When there is a crime, we believe the witnesses because they were there. They had eyewitness testimony. What John is saying is, if we're going to believe the witness of human beings, whose witness should we really believe? How about God's? That's what John is saying. God's witness is greater. What is his witness? That he has testified through his Son. Who's talking here? John, who was an eyewitness of the Son. Chapter 1, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have handled with our own hands concerning the word of life. John is this eyewitness, and he is saying that God witnessed through his Son. You know, there's a huge big deal about witnessing or testifying uh, in denominations all across the United States of America. We talked about testifying. We tried to reframe it, remember, in our study of reframe, or in our study of what we want to be about, glorifying God, edifying one another, testifying Christ. There's a difference. John testified about Christ. Many of the other people in the world testify about something that happened to them in their life. John challenges that thought in our text tonight. What is the testimony? What is the thing that we are to be testifying about, witnessing of? Is it something that happened to us? Or is it about Jesus? Verse 11. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's the testimony. That's what we are to be testifying. That eternal life is offered but that eternal life is only offered through Jesus the Son of God. That is what we're to be bearing witness to. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. That is what we're supposed to be testifying to everyone in front of us every day of our life. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family members, you have to have the Son of God to have life. John was this eyewitness, and he knew just how amazing Jesus was. He saw Him. He heard Him. He touched Him. He witnessed all of the things, and he's saying, if you want to testify about something, you testify about Jesus. You testify and you bear witness to Jesus and what He is able to do for your soul to save you from con condemnation. He is able to save you, bring you out of the state of sin you're in, and bring you into a relationship with God. I'm assuming we're going to talk about it next week, but verse 13. The purpose of why we are being studying this passage, why he wrote it, so that you might believe. That you might know that you have eternal life. That life is through his son. So we're going to have to understand, if we're going to be testifying anything, it's not about me. If I'm going to be bearing witness of something, it's not about me. If I'm testifying or bearing witness, it's going to be about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, and He is who I get life through. He is who we get saved by. And if you don't have Him, 
you don't have life. That is the testimony. Jay or Mingu, do y'all have anything to add? I don't have anything to add for this section. Okay. All right. Well, we're going. I know there's not a lot left in the text, but we're going to stop there this evening, and we will conclude the text next week and uh, have a little bit more to, to study at that time as well. Uh, we want to close out our, our time this evening with a word of prayer, so won't you join me in that? Our Lord God in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity had to study your word. We thank you for the, the opportunity we have to, uh, to gather here, to assemble together, to praise your name, and to encourage one another. May you be with us as we leave here today. May you help us to, to represent you well this week, to shine in our community this week, uh, to give glory to you in all that we do this week. Lord, we uh, are mindful of those who are ill. We are mindful of those who are traveling. We are mindful of those who are struggling right now, and we ask for your blessings to be upon them. And Lord, we, we thank you for sending your Son to die for us. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for providing this opportunity of salvation to us. And Lord, help us to love like you. Help us to testify to what you've done for us. Lord, help us to be better each and every day. We love you, and it is through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.